Good morning, everybody. You have no doubt noticed that I am not Alex Pendick. Uh, I do not have the cool accent or uh, any of the uh, other things that, uh, that you're accustomed to. I am Stan Graham. I'm a friend of Alex's. Uh, we've known each other for a couple years now and I've and, uh, been hanging out here at, uh, at Generation for, uh, uh, for several months and uh, was happy to give him the opportunity to, uh, to uh, relax as he is traveling and being with family. Um, I have to confess to you this morning that I'm a bit tired. Um, not only have I not done this in a while, but I'm just kind of tired in, in, from, from life in general. It's been, it's been quite a journey. It's been quite a ride. You don't know m much at all about me, so let me give you kind of a, a, a brief synopsis of my life. I was born in Fairhope, Alabama, moved to Savannah, Georgia, Omaha, Nebraska, Vicksburg, Mississippi. Then I uh, went to college in Monroe, Louisiana, uh, uh, met and married uh, the love of my life, Kathy, who was from West Monroe, Louisiana, which you may have heard of as the home of Duck Dynasty. She did not know any of them, and no one in her family has a beard like that, and most people in West, Mon West Monroe don't, just in case you were wondering. Um, but uh, got married there and then moved her away because she had spent her entire life in West Monroe, Louisiana, moved her away to Baltimore, Maryland. We moved to Baltimore, then we moved to Woodlawn, then Owings Mills, then Crofton, planted, uh, planted a church, worked in some other churches at the time, moved to uh, Fort Worth, Texas, then Arlington, Texas, helped plant some other things there, and then back to Maryland, uh, Forest Hill, uh, in two different locations. So all told, I've lived in like 15, 16 different houses, um, moved uh, through, I think, seven different states. I'm kind of tired. You know, I'm just kind of tired of moving around. I want, I want to find a place to, to kind of sit. But also, I'm a little bit tired because we've had kind of a, a busy weekend. Uh, this today is, uh, is uh, Kathy and my... 29th wedding anniversary. Um, so um, we, we knew that we would be here this morning, um, and you know we've we've got to get up bright and early tomorrow morning for work, and we had to be at work on Friday as well. So so we decided we would celebrate our anniversary Friday night and Saturday. Friday night we drove down to Washington D.C. and uh, spent the night there at a hotel, and then spent yesterday pretty much on the mall. We got our uh, our uh, what was it, the high top badge for our Fitbits um, for twenty thousand plus steps. Um, uh, and I'm sore from in places that you shouldn't be sore from walking, so I'm not quite sure what's happening there. Um, but it's been a, it's been a busy weekend, but it's been a great weekend. Kathy and I had had we got to spend more concentrated time together than we have in a while, and that was a wonderful thing. Uh, we got to see some museums as well as some some uh, cherry blossoms. And when we were at the National Museum of Art, we saw one of my favorite paintings. This was actually a different version of the one that you're going to see in just a second. Um, but it's a but it's a, a painting called The Return of the Prodigal Son. I love the painting. I, I love the story behind it because I can kind of resonate with uh, with the prodigal. I can I can kind of resonate with the younger son. I I, I, I sort of I, I you know I connect with him. We, we we share some some similar traits and some similar vibes. And in this story, uh, in this painting, uh, this is actually done by um, um, who is this done by, Kath? Yes, Rembrandt. Thank you. I uh, I uh, blanked on that. This is done by Rembrandt. And one of the things I really like about this painting is it kind of it shows the depth of emotion that's going on in this story. This is a story that's familiar to a lot of Christians, to a lot of people who've been in church for a long, long period of time. But it's one of those things that I think we read through it and we, we, we fail to stop and kind of soak in what's actually happening, what's actually going on. What are the emotions that people are experiencing? What's really behind the, the, the scenes? What's going on? And, 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 I, and I love what Rembrandt does here because he shows the father just graciously receiving his younger son. There's no bitterness. There's no anger. There's no resentment. There's no, no, no thought of him uh, 
castigating his son because he took his wealth and ran off and squandered it. He's just simply receiving his son. And there's the, the younger son who's just desperate to be accepted, desperate to be received, and desperate to be loved. I don't know about you, but I think most people can relate to one, of the, one or the other, and sometimes both, of the sons in this story. Have you ever felt like you don't measure up? Have you ever felt like there's a standard there that you know you just can't reach? Maybe it's, a, it's an older sibling. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's just an expectation you've placed on yourself. But there's something there that you just know, I can't get there. And so you kind of feel like the younger son. Or maybe you feel a bit like the older son and you, and you sort of, you know, there's this standard and it's a really tough standard and a whole lot of people can't meet it, but I have. I've kept that standard. And maybe you feel a little bit of resentment towards people who haven't, yet they receive the same kind of grace, the same kind of mercy, the same kind of love that you do. It's a wonderful story that encapsulates pretty much the entire story of the Bible. It, it encapsulates the story of God and us. It tells it probably more succinctly than any other part of Scripture. And so I love this story. I really do. I resonate with this story. I've read it certainly dozens of times, maybe even hundreds of times. And every time I read it, I find something new. I, I, I experience God's grace in a new way. There's something new that comes to mind. And so this morning, I want to spend just a couple of minutes uh, reading this story to you. And then we're going to kind of unpack what, what, what I think can be described as grace in five movements. God's grace in five movements. And so beginning in uh, verse 11 of chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke, this is how the story goes. This is how the story begins. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he, re he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost. But now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. 
His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. See, I love this story for so many reasons. It tells us a whole lot about who God is. It tells us an awful lot about the the character of God. It tells us an awful lot about ourselves, about our own character, our own failures, our own tendencies. And it tells us an awful lot about God's grace. In fact, it shows us, it invites us to live in God's grace and to live out of God's grace. It's grace in five movements. So real quick, what are those movements? Well, the first movement in this story is the movement of away. It's where the younger son moves away from the father. He strikes out on his own. He sets his own court. He rejects his father's way. He rejects his father's household. The younger brother moves away from his father. Now, there's an indication in the story that he just kind of doesn't want to wait, right? You know, he, he knows he's going to get an inheritance. His father's pretty well off, and he knows some stuff is going to come his way, and he just doesn't want to wait for it. He's, he, he's, he's, he's just he's too anxious. He wants it now. And so he asks the father, go ahead and divide the estate now. Now, that sounds like a pretty harsh thing. But in that culture, just then, that's not terribly unheard of. That, that it was a little bit rude, but it wasn't, it wasn't the huge insult that, that we make it out to be. What was, was when he took his portion of the estate and moved out. Because when he did that, what he basically said to his father is, you're dead to me. I'm done with you. I got what I wanted from you, and I'm moving on. I'm going to do my own thing now. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to chart my own course. I'm going to be the master of my own destiny. He told his father, point blank, you are dead to me. That's pretty harsh. And I think there was a little bit of anxiousness there. He just couldn't wait for his inheritance. I think that's part of what's going on. I think really more than that, he didn't understand what he had. He didn't understand how good it was to be in the Father's house. He didn't understand how good it was to be in the Father's presence. And most of all, I think he didn't understand that he had his Father's unconditional love. I don't think he got it. I don't think he got it at all. If he had, I think he would have stayed. I just don't think he felt it. And so he takes what would have come to him at his father's father's death, and he heads out. But I think he also was trying to live up to something that he felt he couldn't. I mean, let, let's face it. The older brother here, his, his older brother, the, the older son, is, is he's heir. He's the heir to his father. He's going to get the bulk of what his father has. He's going to get two-thirds of all that his father has. The younger son's only going to get a third. That's kind of how that worked. But not only that, the older son is going to be the head of the household. When his father dies, the older brother is going to be the head of the household. He will be the patriarch. The younger brother is never going to have that opportunity. He's never going to have that place in the family. He will always be below his brother in authority. That might not be the easiest thing to handle. It might not be the easiest thing to take. 
But on top of that, let's face it, his older brother is kind of perfect. I mean, you know, uh, some of you may be able to relate. You may have had an older sibling who kind of like did everything right, you know, and just seemed to be parents' favorite and just things just kind of broke their way. Things always just kind of happened good for them and that sort of thing. Well, that's, that's where he's at. He's, he's got that older brother. I mean, you know, I've, I've heard it said, you've probably heard sermons on this passage before, and you've, you've heard it said that, you know, when the older brother later on in the story goes to his father and says, look, dad, I've been with you all this time and everything you've ever asked me to do, I've done it. And I've never complained and I've never failed to do it. And you've probably heard people say, yeah, right. I mean, nobody's that good, right? Nobody, nobody does everything that they're supposed to do. And well, that's probably true. But, but let's back up a second. The fact that he says that to his father and his father doesn't correct him on that is an indication that he's pretty good, right? You don't throw that out there if you're going to get slapped back, if you're going to get slapped down. You don't throw that out there. I've been good. I've followed everything you've asked me to do. You don't say that unless there's a good degree of truth to that. He's a good guy. And the younger son just knew, just felt it down deep in his bones. I can't live up to that. I, you know, I can kind of relate to that. You know, I, I've got some, I'm the youngest of five uh, children in my family. And, and all of my siblings were, were high achievers in some way or another. Uh, my, my oldest, uh, my sister Penny, um, went on to get multiple degrees and is the head of her, her department. She's, a, she's a, in education. She's the head of her department and has had a fabulous career. My oldest brother uh, is, is, is a self-made multimillionaire. Um, he's, he became the, uh, the chief executive officer of one of the largest medical systems in the, in the country and now basically just kind of plays with money uh, for a living um, and doing whatever he wants to do, retired uh, at the age of 60 or maybe even slightly before then. Um, but, uh, you know, my, my, uh, my youngest sister, uh, who uh, got a degree in journalism, which is what my, uh, my undergraduate degree is in as well, um, was the city editor of one of the largest newspapers in the Midwest. And, you know, so I, and, and my youngest brother, who was kind of the black sheep of the family, now you need to hear this, he was kind of the black sheep of the family, was an all-state athlete in five sports. Really? I got to compete with that? So I kind of get, I kind of get it what the younger, what the younger son is dealing with here. He's, he's just, he's overwhelmed by it and he's thinking, I can't, I, I just don't have a shot here. But the thing is, he made the same mistake that I have made so many times in my life and that I'm still prone to making today if I'm not really careful. And that is that he failed to understand who he really is. He's not the black sheep of the family. He's not the one who doesn't live up to the, to the standards set by his older brother. What he is is the son who his father loves. That's what he is. That's what he really is. And he didn't get it. He didn't get that he was his beloved, he was the beloved son of his father. My favorite gospel is actually the gospel of John. I love the gospel of John for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons I I, I love it is because of the way John refers to himself. You know, he never calls himself John. He never never references his name anywhere in, in in the book. Instead, he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. I like that. I like that a lot. And I can kind of imagine him, you know, as he's, as he's, uh, as he's, as he's presenting himself that way. He says, I am the disciple that Jesus loved. It's sort of like Yule Brenner in The King and I. I don't know if any of you have ever even seen that. It's, it's kind of how he stands. Um, 
I can kind of imagine that. And I always wonder, how did the other disciples feel about that? How did they take it when John described himself that way? What did Thomas think about that? When, when John described himself as, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. What did Peter think about? What did James and Andrew think about? You know, John was a pretty competitive guy, right? We have, a, we have another story in Scripture where John and James are kind of jockeying for position over the other disciples. They want to be kind of elevated. They want to be seen as, as superior to the others. In fact, they go so far as to ask Jesus, hey, when, when, when your kingdom comes, when the kingdom comes, would you, would you allow us to sit on your right hand and your left hand? And Jesus says, that's not for me to give. That's for the Father. You, don't, you can't do that. And, of course, the other disciples were pretty irritated that, that they'd asked for that. You can imagine. So I kind of wondered, did they get it? Did, did, were, they, were they irritated by John with that description? Or did they understand the same thing John understood? Did Peter understand, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves? Did Thomas understand, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves? For that matter, did Mary and Martha and Lazarus understand, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves? And we could ask the same question today. Are we... Do we understand that we're the disciples that Jesus loves? That's who we really are. Well, the younger son hasn't figured that out yet. And so he strikes off, he heads the other direction, goes on his way. But there's a second movement in this act. There's a second movement in this story, and that's the movement of the awakening. That's where the younger son begins to realize what he has done. The, the, the foolishness of, of taking his inheritance and heading off and charting his own course, leaving his father's house, begins to hit him. Now, it hits him because of hard times, right? It hits him because he basically hits rock bottom. He, 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 he hits the bottom of the barrel. His money runs out. As soon as his money runs out, his friends abandon him. They, they yeah, I'm done with you. Don't, don't have time for you anymore. And so they're, they're all gone. Not only that, a famine hits the land at that point in time. And so he starts to get really, really hungry. In fact, he's so hungry that he's beginning, beginning to envy the pigs that he's feeding. Have you ever seen pigs on a farm where they eat? I've never been that hungry, folks. I've never been even remotely close to that hungry. But he is. That's where he's at. And so he begins to wake up from his folly. He begins to understand how foolish he's been. He even asks this question. He says of himself, he says, how many of my father's servants have more to eat than they, can, than they, than they need? They, they have enough to give away. Yet here I am starving. And so he decides, you know what? <laughs> Dad actually did know best. Father actually was right. He really did know best. It reminds me of a, of a, a, a saying from Mark Twain. Mark Twain uh, frequently said that, uh, that when he was 14 years old, he could hardly stand to be in his father's presence because his father was so ignorant of the world. He just didn't understand anything. And so he couldn't stand to be in the presence of his ignorant father any longer. He struck out in the world to make his own way. By the time he turned 21... He was amazed at how much his father had learned in the last seven years. You know, we're kind of like that, you know? We sort of think we know best until we prove to ourselves that we don't. We kind of think we know best. You know, I know better than my parents. I know better than those who went before me. And then we go prove them right and prove ourselves wrong. And, hmm, okay. Well, that's sort of what's happening here with the younger son. He's stepped in it big time. He's made a huge mistake, and he knows he has. 
He's become aware of that. He's become aware of the fact that the pain he is now experiencing is a consequence of his foolish decisions, his actions. He realizes the consequence of his mistake, but I don't think he recognizes the cause yet, not just yet. The cause of it wasn't, I'm just dumb. I just made a bad decision, or there just happened to be a famine. Bad luck, just a whole lot of bad circumstances all at once. That's not the cause. The cause, the cause, the root cause of the problem he now has is that he failed to understand his father's love for him. He distrusted his father's love. Jesus would put it this way in other contexts and in other places. He would say he didn't have faith. He didn't have faith that the father loved him that the Father truly loved him, that the Father loved him irrespective of what he did, that he didn't have to earn his Father's love. He had his Father's love. He didn't trust it. Well, recognizing his distrust, uh, that's the first step in his return home. When he finally came to his senses, Jesus puts it, he decided to head home. Now, we've got to think about that for a second. Not only did he finally come to his senses, but he also came to a very hard decision. I mean, think about that. He, he, said, he went to his father and said, Dad, you haven't died nearly soon enough, so I want you to give me what will come to me when you die, and I'm going to leave and just pretend that you have, okay? We got a deal? Let's do that. And then he leaves. Now, he's got to go back to that same dad, right? He's got to go back to that same dad and say, wow, I was a jerk. I really blew it. I didn't know what I had. I'm sorry. I, I have offended you. I have sinned against you. He has, that's a hard conversation to have. I mean, can, can, can you relate to that? You ever had to apologize? You ever had to apologize to someone when you really knew, you, you, just, you knew you had to, but you just really didn't want to? Because saying, I'm sorry, wasn't good enough. You knew you'd cut somebody deep. You knew you'd offended somebody. That's where he's at. This is a hard decision. It's a really hard decision. And, he's, and, and he makes that decision, and he begins walking home. It reminds me of a, of a movie that Kathy and I uh, like. It's not one of the best movies ever made, uh, but we like it. And we tend to like really bad movies. Um, uh, if, especially if they're really stupid and the, the humor is just, you know, it's almost so bad that it makes you laugh. It's not the jokes. It's just how badly it's made. Um, this one isn't quite that bad, but it's, it's not a great movie. We love it anyhow. It's called uh, We Bought a Zoo. I like this story because it's kind of an uplifting story. It, it, it talks about somebody who just kind of steps out on a limb and, and, and goes out and does something crazy. But one of the things I really like about it is a quote that Benjamin Me, who's the main character, tells his adolescent son. And he tells him this because his adolescent son is having a hard time with life. He's, he's, he's having a hard time dealing with the fact that they just bought a zoo, having a hard time dealing with the loss of his friends, they just moved, also having a hard time dealing with the loss of his mother who died only a short time uh, before. And he's kind of interested in this girl, but kind of not, and he doesn't really know what to do. And his, and, and his dad, reminiscing over the way he met his wife and the, his, his son's mother, says this, Sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery, and I promise you something great will come of it. That's kind of where the young son 
is, the younger brother is in this parable. This 20 seconds of bravery, he came to his senses. He realized what was going on and he began the trek home. He began the very humbling walk home. Sometimes it only takes a moment of clarity and boldness to act. And we should be mindful of this fact. Some, it doesn't, sometimes that's all it takes for us to just come to our senses and turn back to Father and begin walking. That's all it takes. Which leads us to the third movement in this parable. That's the arrival. We read about that in uh, verses 20 through 24. And one of the cool things that's going on here is that as the young son is walking back home, he's, he's on this slog and you know his head is down and he's, he's, he's tired, he's hungry, he's weak, he's embarrassed, he's ashamed. He's worried about how his father's going to react to him. He's worried about how, how anybody else will. I don't know if you, if you know this about, about the culture in which he's, this, this is happening, but had the city elders or the town elders seen him before, uh, before the father did, they would have had the legal right to stone him for, for having done what he did in taking his father's inheritance and leaving. So, which may explain why the, one of the reasons why the father runs to greet him. He's protecting his son. But he's, he's walking. He's, he's, he's hating life. He really is. And the father runs to greet him. That's a very undignified thing to do. Fathers don't do that. Not in this culture. They don't run to go greet their son, especially not one who has done what the younger son has done. Yet that's exactly what this father does. He runs to greet him. He embraces him. He kisses him. And the son begins to deliver his rehearsed speech. He's been saying this under his breath ever since he left the far country. Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Please make me as one of your servants. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please make me as one of your servants. Father, he's over and over again. He's rehearsing it. He's, he's, he, he wants to be able to say it right. He wants to be able to say it with contrition. He wants to be able to convince his father. He begins to deliver his speech to his father. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. The father interrupts him, doesn't let him finish, won't have it. He says, bring the finest robe in the house. My son's wearing rags. He smells like a pigsty. Put some nice clothes on him. Restore some dignity to him. This, this son who disowned me, who disowned our family, who, who, who considered, considered me to be dead to him, Put my ring on his finger. He's back in the family. He's my son again. Put some sandals on his feet that are probably blistered and worn from the long journey. And go kill the fatted calf. Because this son of mine was dead, but now has returned to life. Here's what kind of struck me as I was rereading this parable again this week. The young son was lost long before he ever left home. He was lost long before he took his inheritance and went away. He was lost long before the money ran out. He was lost long before any of those things. He was lost when he failed to understand and to live in his father's love. He was lost when he failed to understand who he was to his father. 
And because of that, he left home. Because of that, he felt he didn't belong. Because of that, he went wandering. But in finally coming home, he begins to see who he really is. And so the party began. Big celebration, music and dancing and the fatted pit calf and all of that going on. And any good storyteller would tell you that that's where you end the story. It ends right there. Happy ending. Everybody's good. Let's, let's go on happy. But Jesus isn't done yet. Because Jesus isn't a good storyteller. Jesus is a great storyteller. But Jesus is also tor- telling a, a, a true story, not of the prodigal, but of us, the nation of Israel, and, and those who will follow him, those who will be believers in him. He's telling a story that he invites us to live into. And he knows that not all of us are going to relate to that young son. Not all of us are the wanderer. Not all of us are the prodigal. Not all of us have gone out and squandered uh, uh, what the Father has given us. And not all of us have, have died to him or or considered him to be dead to us and gone out and struck our own ways in the world. Some of us are more like the older son. Some of us are more like the good son, the one who does everything he's supposed to do, who checks all the right boxes and does all the right things and and earns the father's favor. The one who makes all the other parents in, in town say to their children, why aren't you more like him, that guy? Some of us relate to him. Some of us understand him. And he reacts in anger. That's what we read about in verses 25 through 30. The son that was the good son, the one who was the obedient son. But why was he obedient? Why did he do everything the father asked him to do? So the, ta- the story that Jesus tells us kind of indicates that it wasn't because he loved his father, it's because he was afraid. It's because he felt like he had to earn that, because he felt like he had to be perfect. He was supposed to hold a particular standard, and so he works really hard to do it. There's no love in that. He says, I've slaved for you. He didn't say, I, I worked for you. I, I, I blessed you. I, I wanted to, to, to bless you. through." He didn't say none of that. He said, I slaved for you. There's resentment in that word. That's what he's feeling. And he made the same mistake as his younger brother. He believed he had to earn his father's love. See, the younger brother felt unworthy of his father's love. He felt like, I can't, I can't, I can't earn it. I can't get it. I, the God's never going to love me or the father's never going to love me because I'm not worthy of it. The older son made the same mistake, except instead of thinking he wouldn't earn his father's love, he felt like he deserved his father's love. Both of them were wrong. Both were lost in their unbelief. Both were lost in the fact that they did not understand that God loved them. They didn't understand that the Father loved them, that their Father loved them simply because He loved them. And so neither could find rest in simply being a son. So when the good son, put in that in quotes, saw the party for the bad son, also in quotes, he got angry because the bad son, the younger son, didn't deserve the father's love. He didn't deserve the father's forgiveness. What he deserved was to starve to death with the pigs in a foreign country. And so the older son couldn't rejoice in his father's grace. He couldn't rejoice in his father's forgiveness. He did not rejoice in his brother's salvation. I don't think he could rejoice at all. He had a sense of entitlement. He felt he deserved something. And it was being denied him. It made him miserable. He may not have wandered from home, 
but he was no more at home than his younger brother. He may not have wandered from home, but he was every bit as lost. Now, this is a really important point, and this is why Jesus tells this parable where he does. This is the, the, the third uh, parable of something lost and found that Jesus tells in a row in, in Luke chapter 15. And all of them are in response to a question asked by the Pharisees. Why are you hanging out with these people? Why are you hanging out with these sinners? Really good religious person wouldn't do that. He'd be hanging out with us. Not hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. And Jesus is teaching them. He's letting them know, I am here. I came to seek and save the lost. It's the sick who need the doctor, not the well, right? That's who I've come for. There are a lot of wandering sons, and I'm here to find them. He's reminding the religious folks that they leave home every time they think God's love is earned. That they wander away from God every time they think they are who anyone else says they are. We live in a world where everyone and almost everything is trying to tell you who you are. If you turn on the TV, you will see ads and TV shows that try to tell you who you are. Try to compare you to someone else who is usually not even real. You open up a magazine, same thing. You turn, you surf the web, same thing. The whole world is trying to tell you that you are someone other than who you really are. The only opinion that matters is God's. God knows exactly who you are. And God loves you exactly who you are. Doesn't mean he wants you to stay there. He wants you to grow. He wants you to, to experience love and his grace. He wants you to come home. He wants you to, to experience all of the, 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 the benefits of being a child of God. But God loves you nonetheless. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what he's teaching. We are who God says we are, and we are nothing else. When we believe other voices, we wander away from God. But thankfully... Our failure is never the last word. Our failure is never the last word. The fifth and final movement here is God's amazing grace, or you could call it the homecoming. It would be another way of saying it. Beginning in verse 31, Jesus says this, The father said to the, the older and the angry son, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, and now he is found. See, both sons, the good one and the bad one, which is not really a good category. It's not how Jesus referred to them, but that's how we think of them. Both sons, the older, the younger, the wanderer and the one who stayed home, both of them had equal access to the Father. Both of them were invited to the party both of them. The father went out to greet both of them. He, he, he ran out into the field to greet his younger son to bring him to the party. And then he went, left the party to come out to the older son and come in, join, celebrate, be happy. Both were invited to the party. Neither one of them earned it. They were invited because the father loved them. That's grace in five movements. That's grace in five movements. And that exact movement of grace is offered to every one of us. In fact, it's offered to everyone. That's kind of our mission as the church, 
not only to live in that, but to also share that with others, to tell people, to help them understand the gospel, the good news that God's grace is available. Not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, not because we've lived up to a standard, not because we haven't. It's available to us simply because God loves us. He loves his creation because he is the good father. The fact is there are many ways to leave home. There are many ways to get lost, but there is only one way to return. That's by faith in Christ Jesus, that his grace is enough. His amazing grace is enough. No matter how far we've wandered, the story of the father who had two sons shows us the grace to come home. It invites us to live in that grace and to live out of that grace. What a shame it would be to stay outside while the party goes on without us. Let's pray.